Welcome to another place and time Where one day you'll be dead or you'll survive Hello everybody and welcome to Dead or Survive. I am your host, Rob Riches. I'm your other host, Cheryl Riches. And we have a special guest today. Do you want to introduce yourself? It is me, the offspring of Rob Riches. <laughs> what Quinn, is your, what is Quinn your... Riches. So Quinn is here to tell us a story today. He's our guest. And it's going to be a surprise. Whatever he's telling us, we don't know about. So this is going to be fun. My guess is he doesn't know either. <laughs> I will become the number one on this podcast. People will be begging for me to come back. <laughs> It'll be good. Anyway. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> anyways this is where we talk about our week yeah so uh what did we do this week what? oh i got to sit at the hospital and wait forever because our system is broken our system is definitely broken and i still didn't get to see anybody no and i'm still in a lot of pain while i'm doing this but for you the fans i will suffer through <laughs> with lots of meds and numbing stuff i got a tattoo it yeah. was really cool yeah he, what what is it again uh it's uh, King DDD from Kirby wearing a coat from a character from an anime that people might not know. If you know One Piece, you'll know Da Flamingo. Yeah. So it's, it's so cool he got a cartoon tattoo. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like really cool. you can talk, you've got a Batman Lego on your arm. Okay. How many people out there just email me know what <laughs> Batman is compared to DDD Flamingo flying thing? <laughs> Maybe if you said it right. I mean, it, it, is, the, it is the highest sold manga of all time. I mean, it sold more than almost Batman comics. <laughs> <laughs> I love the word there, though, that you said almost. Yeah, 427 million, I think, to 500 million Batman. So Batman wins. Thank you. Continue on. You're just encouraging the beast. Mm. <laughs> Forgot logic and reason doesn't work here. <laughs> it does Batman, work. If Batman's involved, not really. It does work, logic and reason. Batman sold more. You buy your own words. We can play right. this back later. This yeah, is yeah, not yeah, what yeah. our podcast is about. It is not. <laughs> it's not about fighting about anime and, and Batman. It could be. <laughs> there might be a market for that. <laughs> we don't know. You join, up. join us next, next week. Thing, next thing you know, doors are slamming. People are storming out, and I'm sitting here telling the whole podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have everyone's story. I guess I'll have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, that would end everything. <laughs> okay. Why are you turning doing pages? <laughs> All right. So, should we start this off? Because it's probably going to be a little bit longer than usual. Why? Because we have three stories instead of two. Math. I hate math. Math should grow <laughs> up and solve its own problems. <laughs> I guess we can. Cheryl. Yes. You have a story. I do. Do you have a drink? Indeed. I'm going to rip potato chip. Okay. So I, I made it a little bit shorter than usual. Um, so you just told us that it's going to be longer, but you made a shorter story. Uh, it's still. You're it's confusing. Still a, oh, whatever. You're exhausting. I'll take up the time. <laughs> so exhausting. Um, I'm going to tell you about Angelique Robledo. Oh. Yeah. Angelique grew up in Southern California. In grade seven, her stepfather got a job in Arizona, so the family, including Angelique, her mother, and her three stepbrothers moved to Maricopa, Arizona. So I guess real estate is, you know, really expensive in Southern California, and I think he got, like, a pretty big promotion. 
So they moved from a mobile home in a trailer park to a five bedroom house with a swimming pool. You think you get a <laughs> <Yeah>. promotion? <laughs> Well, I upgrade. that's what I'm wondering, though. Is it because the cost of living is so much different, or he got that much of a, a promotion? I don't know. I don't once know. again, from janitor to CEO, like yeah. <laughs> once again, maybe if you did a little research, we'd know more about the story. It doesn't it's not that pertinent? I'm just giving you a little background. Oh, okay. Okay, but moving to a new town was difficult. You're the new kid in school. It was. It was with the fancy house. In the fancy house, yeah. So she was struggling to fit in, and she took on the bad girl persona. So she was not afraid to pick a fight for a friend who needed some muscle. And actually in high school, she was suspended for eight months after knocking out a girl with a single punch. Like she was not to be messed with. She eventually dropped out of school and finished her education, taking online online courses and earned a GED. During her wild teenage years, she began smoking, drinking, and doing drugs. Her list of uses included marijuana, ecstasy, and eventually meth. That sounds like a Saturday night in Delhi. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. <laughs> I don't see what's wrong so far. So you walk down the street, you probably find that. Like. Yeah, yeah, especially in London, too. Uh, okay, she'd always told herself that that was one drug that she was never going to do, but um, she went down that rabbit hole when she was having a tough time. Well, yeah, because marijuana is a gateway drug, right? That's what they say. <laughs> That's what they say. Who was the, uh, which president's wife was that? I can't remember. Ronald Reagan. Reagan, yes, Nancy Reagan. Anyways, um, she she says that it. They say like it only takes one time to get addicted to the drug, and they mean it. It just takes one time. So she was working the graveyard shift at Jack in the Box, and she was using the drug to stay awake while she worked there. She continued smoking and snort, snorting until one day something was clearly wrong. <laughs> do, you, do you think blood leaking on my nose <laughs> other than the drugs oh. uh she was tired all the time so she'd do these drugs because it woke her up but she'd do these drugs and then she would still be tired and she thought okay what's going on not enough red bulls around how to take drugs no red bull just didn't cut it anymore i guess oh. so at the age of 17 she found out that she was pregnant she called her boyfriend at the time, and they decided that the best thing would be to have an abortion. They agreed to meet the next day, but in the meantime, Angelique had a change of heart. When she met her boyfriend the next day, she said that she was worried that if she kept going down the road that she was on, she might end up being a tweaker, a meth user, or on the street. And she said, she said to her boyfriend, I really want to do meth right now, and she was going to continue doing it if she did go and get the abortion. She said that this was how her life was going to be forever if she didn't stop. The pregnancy was the only thing that was going to help her. So in the summer of 2010, Robledo saw the image of her unborn son appear on the, her first ultrasound and she saw his little peanut. Whoa, heart. spoiler alert. It's a boy? It's a boy. It doesn't spoil anything. Well, it might. What if the people want? Oh. Well, I know the there story. Was, there, so... was no, there was no forest fire or anything. How would we know? <laughs> I know this story. I'm telling you, it's not a spoiler. Okay. At that point, she had this overwhelming sense of, oh my God, there's really a tiny human growing inside of me. And did meth. She did it the night before, but like at this point she was like, nope, that's got to stop. Right. So that moment was the moment that changed her life forever. And she stopped. Oh, good survival story. That's not the story. Oh, she survived. <laughs> When she was seven months pregnant, Angelique met another soon-to-be mother through a mutual friend. 
and the other mother's name was Cassandra Taruga. The two talked about motherhood, baby names, and nurseries. She said that she was pregnant. Cassandra was pregnant. I can speak, really. It was a small town. You haven't proved that yet. (laughs) So why not have a girl's day? So the pair planned to meet for Christmas shopping together to organize their baby registries together. At the next time, at the time they met, Cassandra claimed she was almost three months pregnant and Angelique had no reason to doubt her. Cassandra would make little comments like, I wish I would start showing. Is anybody catching on yet? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Heard this one before. (laughs) Angelique says she thought her new friend was just needing support and direction and was battling some insecurities. Yeah, she's battling insecurities already. She lost the baby and she's going to take one. Uh, Yeah, I win. (laughs) That's where this is going? (laughs) I I wasn't caught on at all. (laughs) I was like, oh, these two people are down on their luck. Someone's stealing a baby. (laughs) Okay. As the months passed, the teens continued to spend time together and discuss their upcoming motherhood. So on February 16th, 2011, Cassandra was now nine months pregnant. Or sorry. Not Cassandra. Angelique was now nine months pregnant, and Cassandra invited her to hang out. But because she was so pregnant, she didn't really want to go out, so she invited Cassandra over to her house. Her mother... Good choice. Good choice, absolutely. Her mother and her family were all at home, but her family had to leave to go for football practice. When the afternoon rolled around and her family had left, Angelique was ready for a nap. So she kept yawning and saying, I'm getting so tired, like, hint, hint, leave, right? (laughs) Cassandra said that she would go soon. She just needed to wait until her sister got home. And Angelique wasn't about to kick a pregnant woman out, so she waited. So at nine months, she still wasn't showing? and and uh, the... Angelique was nine months, so that would make Cassandra five months, supposedly. And still not showing. Right. What do you mean, supposedly? Oh, look at you giving away the story. <laughs> You've already given away the story. I gave nothing away. Listen. Just listen to my story. I'm listening. Okay. Cassandra then told Angelique she had some presents for the baby. She pulled out a large bag in the kitchen and asked her friend to sit down. Cassandra kept saying how excited she was to give Angelique these gifts. She was acting really strangely, but Angelique had no reason not to trust her. But she did. In the back of her head, alarm bells were going off. Alarm bells! Yeah. Reluctantly. Because she listened to Dead or Survive. And it says, like, listen to the alarm bells. (laughs) Listen to the alarm bells. Reluctantly, Angelique sat on the chair and, at her friend's request, closed her eyes. From behind her, Cassandra began taking gifts from the bag and dropping them into her friend's lap. A baby's blanket, a onesie, and a diaper bag. Angelique said she started to feel really bad because the stuff was expensive. Then Cassandra said she had one last custom-made gift for her, an animal projector light. So it's one of those lights that, like, project things on the walls and ceilings. So like the the name. (laughs) Yes, just like the lights. Just like the name, not stop it. I've done nothing. <laughs> Why am I getting yelled at? Cassandra asked Angelique if they could go to her bedroom and turn off the lights to test it out. Angelique didn't want to go to the bedroom, but she didn't know what else to do. She said later, I know it sounds crazy, but I felt like she was going to stab me. Alarm bells, listen to them. Yeah people there are red flags for a reason (laughs) yeah it's your animal instincts kicking in like from way back when (laughs) 
She put her uneasy feelings down to pregnancy hormones and tried to relax and trust her new friend. Once inside the bedroom, Cassandra flicked off the lights and Angelique instantly felt she was in danger. She ran towards the light switch and turned it back on. Her and saw her standing there with a knife. No. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Her mind was racing and Angelique went back into the kitchen trying to catch her breath. Soon after, Cassandra met her there and said her partner was on the way to pick her up. But just as she finished her sentence, she told Angelique her water had broken. When Angelique suggested they needed to go to the hospital, like five months pregnant, breaking water, not good things, Cassandra backtracked and said that she had simply had an accident in her pants. And she looked embarrassed. Angelique says that she felt so sorry for her because she'd actually gone to the hospital three times thinking that her water had broken, but she'd just peed herself. Yes, it happens. Pregnant women pee themselves. Interesting. (laughs) So do drunk men. (laughs) (laughs) She took the visitor back to her bedroom and Cassandra asked to borrow some dry clothes and Angelique agreed. um, I guess... Angelique would often light candles in her bedroom just for ambiance. So that's what she did. Like this is something she routinely did. So she went in, lit a candle and closed the door for privacy. Within minutes, Cassandra began parading around in one of Angelique's dresses. But then Angelique started smelling smoke and realized that the candle had gone out. Cassandra claimed she didn't know what had happened and asked if she could try on a different dress. So Angelique lit a new candle and left her friend alone again. But this time, When Angelique went back to check on her friend, the smell of smoke was stronger than before. She searched for the source of the smell, and what she found were that the clothes in her closet were on fire. Screaming at Cassandra to help her, Angelique ran back and forth from the kitchen, filling up pots and pans with water to try and extinguish the blaze. But Cassandra didn't help. She called 911, and emergency services arrived and treated both teens for smoke inhalation. Angelique immediately called her mom, who raced home. She told her mom that she knew it sounded crazy, but she thought that Cassandra was trying to stab her and set the house on fire. Meanwhile, paramedics asked for Cassandra's bag so that they could take her to the ER. So Cassandra's out in the ambulance right now, and they wanted her bag. So just as Angelique was about to swing the bag across to the medic, she stopped. And she thought, if I open this up and there's like normal baby gift stuff in there, then I know that I am crazy. But so she reached in and she dropped the bag immediately when she touched something metal. What they found inside was two butcher's knives, a pair of scissors. They were loosely concealed by a newborn's diaper. Angelique screamed and said, I told you she was going to stab me. (laughs) Police quickly closed off the street and started their investigations as Cassandra, unaware that the bag's contents had been discovered, was taken to the hospital. Then the police asked Angelique to call Cassandra and act like everything was okay so that maybe she would confess. So I don't know if she actually confessed to Angelique or not. I couldn't understand what happened there. But eventually, after lengthy lengthy interrogations and numerous story changes, that's why I don't think it was when she was talking to Angelique. I think she got questioned later. Cassandra eventually confessed to the failed plot. She admitted she was trying to kill Angelique so she could cut her open and steal the baby to pass her off as her own. So I guess Cassandra and her husband were trying, she was married, they were trying to have a baby and she couldn't get pregnant. So that was her plan. And her husband had no idea that it was going on. She was going to take the baby 
out eventually. Is like adoption not a thing anymore or? Probably not for somebody who's that young, right? Like they were teenagers. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I forgot they were teenagers. And plus, uh, it turns out Cassandra was a paranoid schizophrenic. So that was part of the problem. Mm, Okay. Then yeah, yeah, maybe not suitable. Yeah. So in February of 2012, Cassandra was sentenced to seven and a half years in a mental health facility. So she's out now. Mm. Yeah. Um, Angelique later gave birth to a healthy baby boy named Ryland. But she's still always a little bit nervous and looking over her shoulder. Because yeah. well, someone tries to steal your baby. Right. And <clears throat> today she is married with three children. So everything has turned around. Wow. Well, what did she survive then? That was kind of a weak survival story. Listen. Weak. The house was almost burnt down. They Somebody was going to try to... Try. She, she was too smart for her. That's what weak. it came down to. So now we're going to start with Quinlan. Yeah. So apparently my story was weak, I guess. I hope that Quinn's is better. <laughs> well, so I kind of took... I uh, took a little bit of a different route. I didn't go for survival story. I went for what I'm going to call a hero highlight. Oh, I like hero highlight. Yeah. Um, because I was like, yours, yours is survival stories, and I figured you would still do one, so I didn't want to kind of, you know, step on your toes. And uh, the last time I was, quote-unquote, involved in this, I uh, gave Dad a story about um, the military, so. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but he survived. Yeah. He was shot. This guy, uh, I'm going to tell you about the I'm man. i sure he survived something. Maybe he was scared one time, and his heart didn't stop beating. <laughs> um, what? I so I'm gonna tell you Hold about on a second, Quinlan. What's up? What? <laughs> I'm just saying at some point in his life he's survived something, I'm sure. Who? The guy you're about to talk about. Oh, yeah. Well, there you go. Survival. Kind of. I mean, like <laughs> if does it count as a survival story if you fought in World War II and came out alive? See? Survival. Right there. Survival. Scared and heart didn't stop? I don't think I forgot about what you said. <laughs> well, it's you can't say it hasn't happened. It happened to somebody we knew. <laughs> Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. Um, so I'm going to tell you about the man who might have single-handedly won World War II. Ooh. His name is Juan Pergil Garcia. I will be... Uh, so he's Canadian? No. <laughs> uh, uh, I'll be changing his name later on to go for his code name because it's a lot easier to say. Okay. Um, but I will. you'll know when that happens. Okay. Uh, so Juan Garcia was born on February 14th, 1912, Valentine's Day in Barcelona, Spain to a conservative Catholic mother and a more socially liberal father. Uh, due to the environment that the strict household was in, it led to Juan uh, rebelling a lot. I like how you say Juan. Juan? Yeah. Juan. Uh, for example, he had a... What, Juan? No, I like it. it I said it was, I like it. Yeah, it led to Juan rebelling a lot. For example, he had a fight with a teacher when he was uh, 16, so he decided he was going to... Juan, Juan. And he decided uh, he was going to drop out of school and start an apprenticeship at a hardware store, stating that school was no longer the place for him. Uh, he worked a bunch of odd jobs studying animal husbandry at the Royal Poultry School. Animal in husbandry? Animal husbandry. What is that? Uh, I believe it's just like the, uh, the the caring of animals and stuff, like oh, okay. breeding them and growing them. Okay. Um, uh, and I, I even wrote down pronunciations because I don't know how to say this. The Royal Poultry School in... Aranice de Mar, uh, and uh, managing various various businesses, including a cinema. Oh, uh, he's an entrepreneur. Yeah, he just did a bunch of odd stuff, and not a lot happened within the next two decades, so we're kind of skipping forward to 1931. Okay. 
uh, Juan has completed was completing his poultry farming education. Hold uh, on one second. What's up? Animal husbandry. Am I completely wrong? The science of breeding animals. Oh, uh, so I was like almost correct. You're, you're, you said breeding. I did that say. One of the it things says you breeding said. and caring for farm animals. Yeah, okay. look at that. Well, I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> um, so he was completing his poultry farming education in 1931 when he received the news that his father had passed away. Um, and, uh, and because Spain had mandatory conscription at the time, Juan was obligated to complete at least six months in the military. He was somewhat of a pacifist and knew that the military knew that military service was not for him, claiming to lack the essential qualities of loyalty, generosity, and honor. It's a direct quote from him. <laughs> That's saying a lot about yourself. Like, I have no honor. And yeah. I, I have no loyalty. Well, also, he was put into the cavalry unit and despised horseback riding. Oh, hated it. That's <laughs> That's fabulous. That's a good choice. So they do a good job of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in 1936, five years later, he was managing a poultry farm north of Barcelona uh, when the Spanish Civil War began. His sister's uh, his sister Elena's fiance was taken by Republican forces, and later she uh, and his mother were arrested and charged with being counter revolutionaries. Oh. Basically, at the time, if you weren't if you weren't in in some way helping Spain, you were a traitor. Oh. Uh, the Spanish Civil War was very complicated, as most wars are, uh, so I'm going to be dumbing this down a lot for time's sake. Basically... Are you saying our, our listeners aren't intelligent? No, I'm saying I don't have time to explain a whole Everybody Civil War. Everybody wants to write in to debtorsurvive at <laughs> gmail.com. Hey, I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't work here, so... <laughs> I, uh, can, I can always forward emails. Yeah, no, I'm blocking you. <laughs> uh, so basically, there were two sides of the war. The Spaniards who supported the fascist regime of Spain and wanted a more nationalist approach to Spain and the Republicans, uh, which acted more as a communist regime and wanted a more socialist change in the country. He was called upon again uh, for military service for the Republican side. But after the way that they treated his family, he wasn't super keen on serving for them, which I mean, usually happens when well, you're. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like all that stuff happened to his family, but then they want him to fight for him. Like... Yeah. I don't think so. So he hid in his girlfriend's home at the time until he was captured by a police raid and was thrown in jail for a week before being freed by the traditionalist resistance group Soroco Bianco. Ooh, fancy. Uh, yeah. Uh, they hid him until they could produce fake identity papers that showed him to be too old for military service. How old was he at this point? Um, well, he was born in 1912, and this is around 1936. So oh, he's not that old. Yeah. But old, I guess, back then. Mm -hmm. About 24? the time i think okay um after that he returned to his poultry farm uh but it was claimed as a resource for the war by the republicans so all of his stuff was taken oh everything was yeah, he taken. loves these people he wants to fight for them for sure at this point he hated communism <laughs> yeah. and the republicans um socialism not his favorite either because that kind of goes hand in hand with the communism yeah it was here that his trolling shenanigans started he used his false papers to rejoin the Republican army, uh, volunteering to lay down telegraph wires on the front line. Uh, Juan had no intention of fighting for the Republicans, but he did intend on fighting against them. So during the Battle of the Ebro in September of 1938, he deserted, he deserted to the nationalist side of the war. Um, so he literally ran across no man's land, put his hands up and went, no, 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 I'm, I'm with you. <laughs> I, I want to fight for you guys. Yeah. That's awesome. He was then uh, beaten and thrown in jail because oh. they didn't truly believe that he was supportive of the cause. I, I guess they kind of couldn't. Which was true because he just wanted to fight the Republicans. That's all he was there for. <laughs> yeah. um, also, fun fact, he, he never fired a single bullet on either side of the war. No. Oh. He was actually a pacifist. Um, 
After the treatment, uh, after the treatment he had received from both sides, it left him very angry with both nationalism and socialism. So imagine his hatred when a certain group known as the Nationalist Socialist Party started rising in Europe, also known as the Nazi Party. Oh, damn. <laughs> oh, damn. So during 1940, the early stages of World War II, he decided, to, he decided he needed to do something for the good of humanity by helping Britain, which at the time was Germany's only major army, army as America hadn't entered the war yet. Uh, in 1941, he approached the British embassy in Madrid, where he was living at the time, three separate times to become a British spy. And each time he was denied, which is hard to blame the embassy for because he had literally zero espionage credentials. Like he was just a farmer. Right. Um, he's kind of already doing it on his own terms. Kind of. Um, so, uh, where was I? Uh, so he decided if he can't be a British spy, he'd become a German one instead. He went to the registrar in Madrid, told them that he was a Spanish diplomat and needed a passport. And they just kind of took his word for it what? and gave him the passport. What? Yeah, yeah. There was there was nothing that said that he needed to do this or whatever. They just gave him the passport. Like even even one of the Can things. Can you imagine that, if anybody tried that now? Yeah. <laughs> um. So uh, he gave him the passport, which made him look like which made it look like Juan worked for a Spanish embassy in Lisbon. Juan then got in contact with a German spy by showing Germany his fake passport and telling them that he was sympathetic to Germany and their cause. The spy was sent to make sure that Juan was on the up and up, and after determining that he was, gave him a crash course in espionage, including secret writing, a bottle of invisible ink, a code book, and 600 pounds for expenses. So this guy was like, dude, I want to be a spy, and I'm going to just make you let me be a spy, and it happened? Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> um, Best part about that is the invisible ink. Yeah. <laughs> I remember getting that as a kid. Yeah, it's like one of those little spy toys. Um, Using, oh, sorry, where was it? Uh, His instructions were to move to Britain and recruit a network of British agents. Instead, he decided to move to Lisbon, bought a bunch of magazines on life in Britain, and went to the library to learn more about British history and traditions. Using this information, he gave updates on what it was like in London. Uh, And because he was using information that wasn't extremely useful but still credible, his reputation in the Germans' eyes were growing. Like he'd see that there was like a festival or a fair like in 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 uh, in London, and then he would just there was a festival and a fair in London, and then send it to the Germans, <laughs> and they'd be like, "He's right." <laughs> um, so his reputation, uh, where was I? Um, ba, 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 ba. And the, yeah, his reputation in the German eyes uh, were growing, uh, and even more so because Juan couldn't figure out how the British money system worked. Uh, because of the way that how pounds and everything are broken down, yeah, it was a little bit confusing for him. Uh, he couldn't figure out how the British money system worked, and he was telling the Germans of all of his expenses for transport and food and stuff like that, all of which were fake. And instead of trying to figure out the money system, he just told the Germans that he'd calculate all the money he spent at the end of the war, which Germany thought was very admirable. They they, they were like, "Wow, this guy's working on his mission; doesn't even care about the money." <laughs> That's uh, awesome. And he kept he kept this up even recruiting new spies by making up fake names and lies for each oh of them. Oh my god. The fake spies were also his scapegoats for when he was wrong. Like, if he got times wrong about a military movement in Liverpool, he could just write back and be like, sorry, Steve forgot his watch again. You know how it is. be like, kill Steve. Okay, I'm on it. Yeah. <laughs> his reports were so convincing that eventually they were even picked up by the British intelligence programs, and they seemed so credible, Britain conducted an entire search of London for a German spy. Well, in reality, Juan is just in Lisbon trying to just troll the Germans. That's amazing. Um, in 1942, America had finally joined the war and set up an embassy in Lisbon. 
And at this point, Juan had about a year's worth of info on the Germans and their spy systems. So he walked into the embassy and was just basically like, I've been working for the Germans for about a year. Uh, Not really, but sort of. Yeah, here's your stuff. (laughs) Here's here's all the stuff that they have. And the Americans were so stunned that they almost immediately set him up to actually go to London and work as a spy for the British MI5 program. Um, (gasps) That's what James Bond is part of. There you go. Is this James Bond? No. Oh. The Britons had had at this point been aware that someone had been misinforming the Germans because at one point, Juan had sent a message saying that there was a British patrol in a jungle nearby. And the Germans spent two full weeks looking for them. And when they couldn't find the people who did not exist and asked Juan what was going on, he just responded with, ah, Steve, they got away. Better luck next time. (laughs) That's awesome. And, uh... (laughs) After starting to work with the British. He's like the original troll. Yeah. Uh, Juan was given the code name Garbo after the actress Greta Garbo, saying that Juan was one of the best actors in the world. This is where I changed his name to Garbo. Okay. Uh, Garbo's work was so impressive, uh, so impressive to the Germans, and they were so overwhelmed with the war, they stopped recruiting new spies, believing that Garbo and his network of spies that definitely exist were enough for Germany. The information supplied to German intelligence was a mixture of complete fiction, genuine information of little military value, and very valuable military intelligence purposely delayed. Oh my god. In in November of 1942, one of Garbo's agents on the River Clyde reported that a convoy of troop ships and warships had left port, painted in the Mediterranean camouflage. Uh, While the letter was sent by airmail and postmarked before the landings, it was deliberately delayed by British intelligence in order to arrive too late to be useful. Garbo received a reply from the Germans saying, we are very sorry that they arrived too late, but your last reports were magnificent. Oh my God. Uh, Due to incidents like these, Germany decided, deemed Garbo to be too important to be communicating through the slow process of mail and sent over a bunch of their codes and requested that Garbo transmit over radio. Just put this in perspective. He is working in the building of the British intelligence. That's amazing. So the Germans are just sending them all of his codes and whatever, and he basically just goes up to a desk and be like, here's the new German stuff. (laughs) Um, Every so often, something would happen that Garbo should have known about, according to the Germans, uh, because remember, he had all these spy networks, so the Germans were keeping track of who was in where. Right, yeah. But he never said anything about it. For example, at one point, a troop of warships did leave Liverpool, and Garbo had said he had an agent there, so why didn't he give any warning? Garbo just straight up told the Germans that this agent was sick and couldn't couldn't oh report. God. And after four weeks, the Germans were like, so what's going on with this guy? Oh, he died. He di- yeah, he died. <laughs> yeah, he died. The British government set up a fake obituary in the papers, and he sent that to Germany. Oh. Germany was so distraught that, one of, that they thought that one of their agents had died. They sent him condolences and compensation money. Come on. So was he getting paid like this whole time too? Like he's. <laughs> I, uh, I I say that at the end here. I, okay. I'll tell you how much exactly he was sent by the Germans. Um, you know, they were so upset about this. Uh, they sent condolences and money for the widow of the man that didn't exist. That's amazing. Eventually, Germany hooked up Garbo with one of their Enigma machines for even more secure transmission. What's that? Uh, in World War II, um, because it was mainly a war of information, um, Germany had set up a a uh, machine called the Enigma machine, which is basically their code, their like their super secret code stuff. So if you wanted to, if you wanted to transmit stuff to Germany, you had to go through their Enigma machines. Oh, okay. So they were just handing off all the codes and the big machine to Garbo. Like they apparently they transported it like into into London through these canals and whatnot. Yeah. Um. So who 
he was there because he was still. I thought he was still in Madrid. No, he had moved to London at this point. Oh, when he, okay. when he when he talked to America, America set him up to move to London oh, because okay. they're like, why did the British never take this guy? He's okay. a mastermind. Right. Okay. Um. So, uh, so he got this super like extremely secure Enigma machine that basically once he got it again, he just went up to the desk and was like, "Here you go." <laughs> now they can just use it for whatever. Yeah. That's awesome. So, in January of 1944. Uh, the Germans believed that a large-scale invasion of Europe was imminent and wanted to be kept informed. Garbo's main role in the war, and why I believe he's almost single-handedly responsible for winning World War II, is an operation known as Operation Fortitude, which was the distraction campaign for Operation Overlord, the storming of Normandy, also known as D-Day. Uh, between January 14, uh, 1944 and D-Day of June, which was June 6, 1944, he sent over 500 messages to Germany, sometimes more than 20 a day. And it was during this period that the Allies believed that they needed to convince the Germans that the landings at Normandy were actually going to happen at the Strait of Dover. In order to keep up his act, the Allies carefully decided to give up some of the actual invasion plans for the beaches of Normandy, but they were going to send them late. The story that was sent to the Germans was that Garbo had an agent coming to tell him the information on the night of June 5th, and that once his agent got here with the invasion plans, Garbo would tell the Germans all of it. However, the call was made at 3 a.m. June 6th, and the Germans did not pick up the phone until 8 a.m. If you paid attention to history class, you would know that the Allies landed on the beaches of Normandy at 6.30 a.m. Uh, so an hour and a half. I didn't, I didn't know that. That's fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. An hour and a half after, after the Allies had landed, Germany finally picked up the phone. Oh, my God. Um, once the Germans finally answered, Garbo told them everything. The raid was over. Uh, saying that his agent had told them all about the invasion and exactly what would have happened. He even started playing up the part so much that he got angry with the Germans for missing his message, saying, "I this is a direct quote, I cannot accept excuses or negligence. Were it not for my ideals, I would abandon the work. Oh my God. So he's just, yelling at them. He's just he... yelling at him with the fake information that he does not have. <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds like a woman arguing with you in a marriage. <laughs> God. He was a professional gaslighter. They just yell at you and yell at you, but they don't have any of the information. On June ninth, <laughs> on June 9th, three days after today, Garbo sent a message to the German intelligence that was passed directly to Adolf Hitler, that said he had information on a large on a large force of Allied troops gathering in this in southeast of Britain. Uh, and they were about 150,000 men strong with armored vehicles and aircraft, uh, and that they were being led by American General Patton, who is one of America's really good generals. Um, the force that was actually there was General Patton, a decent chunk of men, and inflatable tanks and aircraft inflatable and fake... Inflatable tanks? Inflatable tanks. They were actually created by a magician. Come on. No, inflatable tanks and fake aircraft with vans traveling throughout, putting out useless radio chatter. So that way, if a German plane flew over, they could oh, be like, like there was everything was in place. Garbo's message pointed out that the units from this formation had not participated in the evasion. And therefore, the first landing at D-Day should be considered a diversion. A German message to Madrid sent two days later said all reports received in the last week from Garbo's spy network from Garbo's spy network undertaking have been confirmed without exception and are to be described as especially valuable. Um, basically this guy's word is now law. That's insane. 
a post-war ex- what, can you imagine though if somebody had like shot one bullet at one, at one of the tanks or something it's like, yeah yeah exactly <laughs> right but but if but but if they were real and they did shoot a bullet that's a whole force yeah, coming at that's you that's true yeah <laughs> A post-war examination of German records found that during Operation Fortitude, no fewer than 62 Garbo's reports were included in the German war room, uh, or in the war room of German intelligence. Which basically means that when Hitler and his generals would sit down and talk strategy, they listed Garbo as a direct source 62 times. Wow. Um, the OKW, or the uh, Oberkommando der Wehrmacht, Ooh, listen to you. <laughs> uh, accepted Garbo's reports so completely that they kept a large force, an even larger force that was at D-Day, that was even, that was even at D-Day, uh, at waiting for a second invasion throughout July and August of 1944. And the Germans believed this to be of such importance that they sent Germany's greatest general, Erwin Brommel, to lead the force. And to his credit, he tried to tell the OKW that it was a ruse, but they wouldn't believe him. They took Garbo's word. Uh, which, it was basically that point, Germany had so much of their force dedicated to this fake invasion, the Allies were able to just go in. Oh, that's awesome. So, if it wasn't for that the war would have gone completely different. Um, in late June, Garbo was instructed by the Germans to report on the falling of V-1 flying bombs. This was a problem because he couldn't tell, he couldn't tell them that the bombs were working because if, because if, if, if they were, they would just keep bombing. And he couldn't tell them that they weren't working because they could just send planes and, and find out that he was lying. So instead, Britain arranged for Garbo to be arrested. He returned to duty a few days later, now having a need to avoid London. Uh, and forwarded a quote-unquote official letter of apology from the Home Secretary for his unlawful detention. And this is kind of answers your question. The Germans paid Garbo uh, 340,000 U.S. dollars over the course of the war to support his network of agents, which at one one point totaled 27 fake people. Jesus. Uh, For some extra info, he received the Iron Cross over the radio, which is the highest honor Germany bestows and is usually reserved for frontline soldiers and needs the signature of Adolf Hitler himself. He also received the MBE, the most excellent order, the most excellent order of the British Empire, the highest honor presented by Britain. Uh, he ended up faking his death after the war because he was scared that the Nazis would come and try to find him and kill him. He then moved to uh, Laguinius, uh, Venezuela. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Laguinius, Laguinius. Oh, isn't that where? No, Argentina. That's where they figure Hitler. Actually, that's where the conspiracy theory. Yeah. No, this is Venezuela. Yeah. Um, where he lived in relative uh, uh, anonymity, running a bookstore and a gift shop. He eventually went back to Europe and paid his respects on the 40th anniversary of D-Day. Uh, a lot of historians believe that if not for D-Day, World War II would not have gone the way it did. And the main reason it went as well as it did was because of the leading role op- uh, Garbo played in Operation Fortitude. Well, that was freaking cool. That yeah. Was, that was an amazing story. Yeah. The the story about uh, the troll who lived. The, so they didn't, the little troll who so could. So, like, they never figured it out that he was... No, they never... Germany never figured out that they had uh, that they had been duped, so they never went back on the Iron Cross. Wow. So, so he, he's one of the very few people in, in all of history to be awarded the highest medal of honor on uh, on both sides of the war. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, all for lying. And, yeah. For, yeah, and for most of it, he was just in Spain, just yeah. telling them fake stuff. He had magazines and was at the library. Wow. Like just telling them stuff about London. And he didn't really want to be a hero because he just didn't. He just, he just hated, hated the Nazis. 
because they, they took his chickens. They, well, they, he hated nationalism yeah. and hated socialism. Yeah, so as soon as the nationalist socialist party, and he was getting back at them, yeah, and then, and end up being this war hero. But it's also very funny that this guy with zero spy training, except for the crash course that this that the German agent yeah. gave him, became a British MI5 well, he was, agent. He was already doing it. He was yeah. doing he was doing it on his own before his crash course. Well, literally, when the when the Americans. Um, found him or like when he came to the american embassy and was like hey i have all this stuff they're like and britain didn't accept you yeah. <laughs> like that's when they immediately got on the phone like what the hell is your problem like, <laughs> that's awesome but yeah that's my story his name was juan pergil garcia i'm surprised that we're not taught about him more in school yeah i'm surprised we're not taught about a lot of things in school yeah don't get me started yeah <laughs> that was a good story mm -hmm. thanks for coming thank you thank you for having me that's awesome. Okay, well, that's the end of our no, show. It's not. What? No, We're still going on. You still have yours. You still want me to do some Darwin? Yeah. Yeah. We need like lighthearted laughter. Wow. Let's keep it up with the army. Uh, yeah. Theme then. Here we go. All right. So May six, two thousand and four, and since you know war's going on there, we might just talk about Ukraine. Oh, okay. Did yeah. you know that piling up live artillery? is grueling work no oh yeah it's heavy you know you just you need a break every once in a while so it makes perfect sense for a group of soldiers to go out and have a cigarette break no yes so the warehouse was filled with ninety-two thousand tons of ammunition until the soldiers lit up their cigarettes and inhaled deeply ignoring the warning signs that smoking can cause cancer <laughs> Because that's the biggest problem here. <laughs> they flicked the butts away and went back to work. It's but, like those cartoons with the firework factories. Yep. That's all I'm picturing. Mm -hmm. in my well, head and that's right basically here. what happens. The glowing embers of the tobacco butts acted like a slow fuse, which started a small fire that nobody noticed until it ignited a chain reaction of massive explosions. Oh my God. And bullets like just flying everywhere. The explosion <laughs> lasted for a week. Jesus. No. Tossing debris as far as 25 miles away, Holy. destroying buildings in a two mile radius and oh forcing the evacuation of thousands of nearby residents. Red hot shrapnel set off additional fires in nearby towns and ruptured a minor gas pipeline totaling damages from the smoke break was estimated at $750 million. What happened to the soldiers? Miraculously, only one Johnny died in this disaster. So, yeah, because they walked away, right? Like, they had their smoke through the butt and they walked away. Well, they went back to doing the work, but yeah, but I guess they uh, they were able to run, but one of the smoke breakers died, which makes him part yeah. of it. So, our but, Johnny... I mean, what happened to the other guys? Like, Oh, Did they, they were... get hung and he had to he died too. Like what happened? They were charged with grossly uh, neglecting the fire safety rules yeah. <laughs> and smoking on an ammunition site. Wow! So they got fined. Wow! I would hope so. I don't think it was enough to cover the seven hundred and fifty million dollars. <laughs> You're we're fining you seven hundred and fifty million dollars. Okay. <laughs> For your smoking yeah. violation. <laughs> That's one hell of an OSHA violation. Can I have a raise? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because they didn't lose their jobs. Yeah. So that was in 2004. I'm surprised we didn't hear more about that. Yeah. yeah. You would think. Like, <laughs> you would think so. I mean, Quinn was it probably. It kind of tickles something at the five. back of my brain. Yeah. But Quinn would have only been five, but yeah. you would have been 40, and I would have like, been 32. I would have been 40. I would have been 32. I would have been like 10. 
so in 2004 yeah. <laughs> you had two children already so yeah no you were not 10 you were five years older than me yeah that would be a thing yeah so for our second one johnny 59 had a big 5,000 acre ranch and somewhere on the ranch he found a stash of dynamite in a shed and it was located three miles from the ATK thermocol I don't have what no idea what the heck is the that account. well if you give me two seconds I'd finish okay. that's why I put pronunciation things on mine booster rocket testing area okay details about the stash are few but Deputy Kevin Potter said whether the dynamite was his or whatever, that's yet to be determined. But whatever the origins, the rancher decided to take all the dynamite, pile it up, and then do what country boys do. Is this story about Eddie? <laughs> <laughs> and shot at it. Oh, no. Old dynamite sweats nitroglycerin. Oh, no. And once it sweats, it becomes very unstable and can pop. Anytime. Well, what did he think it was going to happen, though, if he was shooting at dynamite? Well, so the the rancher placed it all. It was about in the knee-high grass, backed away about 40 yards, and fired a shotgun at it. The dynamite response was to send shrapnel back at the rancher, and the shrapnel scored a solid hit to the man's head. Oh, my God. He probably thought he was far enough back, right? Yeah. He was probably trying to get rid of it. I don't know what he was doing, but um, there... When it went off and stuff like that, it took them uh, almost three to four weeks to try to figure out everything that happened and, and oh all that God. stuff. And, and find and, all the pieces of them? No, I guess they found him pretty good. It just hit him in the head and oh. laid down and stuff. But yeah, so those are my Darwin stories. Don't play with dynamite. Yeah, yeah that's good advice. Not old dynamite anyways. Play with. Don't play with dynamite in general. Did you know you, that Quinn's, you... did I ever tell the story about Quinn's grandfather playing with dynamite? On the show? I don't think you did. Maybe you did. Maybe you did when we had our little tribute to him, but I'm not sure. Oh, maybe. I don't Just, know. But my grand, uh, my my father, Quinn's grandfather, decided they were going to clean out a well at our old place. And a buddy of his um, was a demolition expert at a construction. So he goes, oh, I'll bring you home some dynamite and we'll just clear the shrapnel off of it. So my mother loaded this up in the car and took off. But my dad and his buddy, Bill went out there and they took just a quarter stick of dynamite and dropped it down this tube and lit and thought it would clear the shrapnel away. Well, it was way more powerful than they thought. And it blew out all the windows in the garage. It blew apart the post. <laughs> but did the well work again? But the well worked. <laughs> so there you go. Well, that's good. So ladies and gentlemen, we're at the time of our podcast where we say, please like, subscribe, follow, Tell me stories. Tell Cheryl stories. Please tell her stories. Yeah. That way she can screw them all up, make them boring. Or you can come be a guest if you have a story like Quinn did for us today. Yes, if you'd like to be a guest or, or talk about it and you live in our area, you can email us. We'll tell you if you live in our area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's at podcast at gmail.com. I still hate that email oh, address. We're in the season two and I still hate it. <laughs> so ladies and gentlemen, as one last final goodbye of Quinlan, he is going to do the dad joke for he us. He is the honorary dad joke teller. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be, it's, all it's right. It's going to be dad joke. Because I'm not allowed to tell mine because Cheryl got mad at me. Why did I get mad at you? Because you told me it was inappropriate. Oh, probably it was. All right. <laughs> <clears throat> What do you, why can't, why is it really hard to see um, non-binary people's parents?
Why? They're trans parents. Oh, I kind of like that, though. That's it. <laughs> That's my joke. I'm out. Oh, See ya. I'll never be here again. Goodbye. Again, Goodbye. you can send an email to quinriches at gmail.com. Yeah. Don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm busy. I'm not a part of this. I don't work here. All right. Well, that is our episode. Then. I hope you guys enjoy it. And the next time you hear us, it'll be Christmas Day. So happy holidays. Merry yeah. Christmas. Happy Christmas. holidays. Whatever you uh, celebrate out there, I hope you guys have a good time with it. Enjoy your time with your family and your friends. Be safe. Have a good one. Bye. Bye.